Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, Weston Williams, joined this week by creative consultant Oliver Camacho and co-host Matt Cummings. We are live on WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. It is the phone-a-thon currently, so call us live on the air and have your voice heard. 847-866-9687. You can also donate. Get us to our goal of $30,000. And we'll tell you a little bit more about that as we get going. Uh, All right, tonight we take an inside look at Chicago Opera Theater's 2018-2019 season announcement, and we scored on the Dodd and scale. Will COT make it to the plus points column? A lot of other companies haven't been doing that recently. But first, the Boston Globe recently published an in-depth article on James Levine featuring interviews with two dozen former students, one of whom describes the conductor's years as the, at the Cleveland Institute of Music as a, quote, cult. We'll tell you what these interviews add to the ongoing Levine saga. It might make for a good opera, maybe? At 9.40 p.m., it's the two-minute drill. Everything you need to know from the past week in Opera Land and our hot takes on those stories. Plus, Oliver plays Monday evening quarterback on the recent production of Mozart's, Co- Mozart's excuse me, Cosi Fantute at the Lyric Opera of Chicago. Also, this evening is opening night of WNUR's Phonathon. Call in at 847-866-9687 or donate online at www.wnur.org slash donate. All right. So without further ado, Oliver Camacho, how's life? Life is good, but I still am feeling the anger from yesterday at Call Me By Your Name being shut out of any acting award. Oh, so and sad. That, oh, he definitely should have won Best Actor. Yeah. Oh, and for sure. All right, Matt Cummings, what's what that was that your hot take on that? Yeah, I my my main takeaway from the Oscars was that I was sad that Lady Bird got totally shut out, but Timothy's oh, yeah, Chalamet yeah, was yeah. also up there for me. But yeah, I, I also realized just yesterday that Michael Stuhlbarg wasn't even nominated for supporting actor, and like I thought that his performance was the most memorable performance of the year. Is he the dad? Yeah. And, eh, I wasn't so much of a fan. Gasp. <gasps> yes. Yeah. See, this is what we have to talk about when there are no sports. The Olympics are over. And the Olympics it, are like a gay sport. Uh, rest in peace, Olympics. <laughs> I mean, the um, the Grammys, the Oscars. Try like the one other more big, time. Yeah. <laughs> Grammys, Oscars, Tonys? No, no, not the Grammys. Uh, okay. The Tonys more than anything, but Tonys is like perversely gay. But Oscars is a pretty gay event, you know? Oh, yeah, it's, it's yeah. true. It's true. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, and uh, pretty good diverse. Uh, ca- I feel like they would have cast pretty high on the Dotson scale for this uh, season of awards. Definitely higher than Oscar So White year. What that was that, that is two true. years ago. Yeah, yeah. It was they had a, a, a an opera about a transsexual win best foreign film, and they had an opera about. I'm an opera. <laughs> I- 
a movie, a movie. Yeah. And then Jordan Peele won for um, best original screenplay. And he was the first African American. Well, he's ever. biracial, so only half seas. But still. The fact that no one else has ever won is <laughs> yeah. both horrible and not at all surprising, given yeah. the way things work. Yeah, true. But congratulations to him. But now I think we're going to move on to a more operatic repertoire because uh, <laughs> Oliver is already jumping the, uh, yeah. the gun there. So we're going to go into Chalk Talk. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. Okay, we're going to start off with a quote from this uh, Boston Globe article, and I'll read it to you. Uh, quote, They were known as Levinites, or maybe it's Levinites, uh, Levinites, rather. Uh, Levinites, the young musical acolytes who bent to the will of James Levine in all things back when the conductor was the highest emerging star in conducting. From the outside, it seemed a charmed circle. The reality inside was otherwise. Dark, sexually charged, and often demeaning end quote. So let's talk a little bit about this article. Um, this is a very disturbing article. Yeah, it, it really was. And <laughs> I think, I think I'm pretty sure that it, we're going to... George, if you're listening, go ahead and put it on the site so people can read it uh, if they haven't already. Um, obviously, we've been following the James Levine story from the beginning. Um, but I think we've kind of progressed from another, you know, hashtag me too sexual... Uh, sexual harassment thing straight on into full-on cult. I mean, if you read the article, it cult does not seem to... Cult seems to be an accurate description yeah. of what was going on. I mean, there have been so many stories uh, over the years that kind of were just amongst musicians, amongst, the, you know, the, the people that were in his community and people at the Met, but now this is, like, really out there, and it's horrifying. Mm. And you even... There's a couple of pictures uh, in this article... Um, and there's one picture of these um, musicians that are all dressed like James Levine. They all have like the same glasses, and like it definitely substantiates the idea that he told them what to do, what to eat, where to go, who to love, what to wear, whether, whether they were allowed to be outside or not. Yeah, was, yeah. What to read, or, you know? Yeah. Uh, it was. It was very much. If you if you read a lot about you know uh, the the sort of the fad for want of a better word, uh, the, the the cults of the 60s and 70s. And I think this was r- around the same Right around era. the same time, yeah. Um, uh, the, same, the same kind of things. I mean, it's the kind of story that, you know, if you're reading it and you, and you got to the end and it said, and then they all drink poison Kool-Aid and died, it would absolutely be the same story uh, as a lot of those uh, sorts of things. It, it, the degree of... Uh, Control uh, exerted the um, these the you know sexual acts. Everything really feels uh, t- just outside of all normalcy um, in a very dramatic way. And uh, and what, what's really astounding to me about it is that he was able to parlay these actions, like these specific actions, into his reputation as a mentor and a cultivator of talent. That was yeah. That was. You know, number one was James Levine, conductor extraordinaire, made the Met Orchestra better, picks his favorite singers. And number two is he's a teacher. He's a pedagogue. He he is bringing up the next generation of talent. And the dark side of that is staggering. Now that we know the the extent of the abuse, I'm yeah. frankly shocked that it took this long for this to come to light uh, with, with it being as extreme as it is. Yeah, it, it is so extreme. Uh, now, now, we, we should... Uh, mention that of course Levine continues to deny all these sorts of things um, but if even 
if they even interviewed if, if even 24 eight, people, you know, yeah, exactly, and if they even, all agree that this happened. You know. If even a just like an an eighth of it is true, it's still one of the most horrifying stories to come out about this kind of thing that I know of. Uh, in, in I don't know at least a century. I mean, it, it, it's 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 that bad. It, well worth a read, but you know, uh, kind of a you know heads up going into it. It is it is. It is intense. Yeah, some highlights include him him making students hypothetically choose between him and their own parents, mm. or asking them whether they would save the la- the only remaining score of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony or a baby from a burning building. And the article is pretty clear that there was there wasn't really much room for debate there. He his it was his way. It was his what his answer was, or you were you were out. And the, he got all these students under his thrall by first usually flattering them or encouraging them and encouraging like a, yeah. them and then would cut them down in public in front of people so that their whole world was destabilized. And he was there to welcome them into this inner circle as s- seemingly a blessing that. So mm. up until like all these things came out, I was in the back of my head thinking like, what made James Levine a person who would have you know, sexually harassed people. And there's lots of reasons why people gain that behavior, you know, by the way they were treated, their upbringing, et cetera. You know, they're like perpetuating some kind of cycle. But this is beyond. This is like goes to different territory. This is like demented stuff, you know? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, the, the, the quote from the blurb earlier maybe would make a good opera. I mean, I was, uh, I didn't write that line. That was George. Um, I'm going to throw him under the bus there. But I have to admit, <laughs> I have to admit, I was kind of thinking it too. It's so extreme. It's so, I mean, if, if I'd seen this come out of like a composer like uh, Franz Schrecker or any of like the early 20th century German uh, hardcore uh um, you know, it really doesn't feel that different from how they talk to Voltzek, what it sounds like he did. Yeah, yeah, what exactly. he did to these students. And I, I, I almost, it almost seems like <laughs> he was trying to emulate that. Even uh, it, 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 it's so, it's so, so extreme. It, it's the kind of thing that you, I, I can't really fully come to grasps with a real human being doing it unless it's in a setting that is fictional or, or hundreds of years in the past but it seems to have waned when he got to the met like and uh, is yes. that because he realized like i can't carry on with this because i'm now at a major institution or that the people at the met actually knew what he was doing and you know put the kibosh on it and well, i think part of the problem is that um, at, at the time this was this was at uh, uh cleveland um institute mostly at cleveland institute of music right where he right. was uh, he worked there when he was uh, an apprentice to George Zell in yeah, exactly. Cleveland. So this was all uh, some young... of it spilled over into a summer program, but most of these kids were kids. Yeah, actual kids, and I, I do think 17, that 18... it's a little harder to uh, brainwash people into that sort of thing once they're older and more experienced and yeah. can kind of have see the same level coming. of control. You definitely, he definitely exerted more control over. Uh, over the adults who worked at the Met, then lesser artists probably would have been able to True. get away with. Which um, is, a, you know, it's a dark side of that. The myth of genius is that people let him get away with it for so long because he was a once in a generation talent. It was, yeah, and it's 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 always so hard when you when you see something like this about 
someone who is so talented, particularly in an artistic field, you, you want to think, um, oh, if a person is this good at making something beautiful in the form of music or art, you, you really don't want to think of them as this level of monstrosity. Uh, and I know, you know, after reading this article, I kept on flashing back to uh, to moments in my youth where I would express admiration for James Levine. Yeah, I was just like, oh, ugh. The arts in general are also really willing to overlook horrendous personal failings in in the name of genius. I mean, you got Wagner, you got Woody yeah. Allen. The list goes on and on and on and on and on. And where do you where do you draw the line? So now, what do we do with? James Vines's legacy, like with his recorded output, especially. I mean, do not that there are that many classical radio stations out there, but do classical radio stations play his recordings anymore? I mean, I think ultimately they will. Um, just because, I mean, if, if you if you like look at, uh, I mean, think of uh, all of the early 20th century recordings from, um, you know, Nazi conductors and former Nazis. Um, I mean, you you still you still you still hear hear him around. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Arian is yeah, still exactly. On the radio uh, and, and I mean, maybe if there is classical music somewhere out there on the radio. Yeah, but people still bought Von Karajan records until he died, and and afterwards. Yeah, and afterwards. Um, and uh, I, I think they're going to keep on keep on doing it, and I, I don't know if that's. I I don't think I can sit in judgment and say that's a good thing or a bad thing. Either way, simply because, you know, I think part of the appeal of classical music to me is that sort of historical aspect where where it is all of these flawed people um, creating great, great music. I mean, you know, like you said with Wagner, you know, he's probably a person I would have wanted to punch in the face in real life uh, for good reason. But I listen to his music all the time. That said... Once you get to a point with like someone like James Levine, where he's alive when I'm alive, uh, that comfortable sense of of it of being past, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, it it doesn't. It's not there anymore. Um, and there are also like so many artists whose careers were because of James Levine. You know, the artists that we care about because he brought them up. Right. Yeah. You know, like. Don Upshaw, for example, who's an amazing mm-hmm. artist, you know, and she probably would have found her path with, even without James Levine, but it definitely helped. But there know? are people on, there are singers on his recordings whose artistry I really respect and yeah. want to listen to still. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's kind of the, one of the things about the, uh, the hashtag Me Too movement. Um, a, a lot of, I see a lot of debates, particularly on the internet, about, you know, what, 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 what if this director, what if uh, a Weinstein, Weinstein, Harvey Weinstein film, uh, can you still watch that? And it's like, well, I mean, he was an awful person, but um, movies are such a collaborative art, artistic effort. And the same applies to theater and classical music. Um, yeah. You, on the other hand, I would totally understand anyone who said they didn't want to watch a Miramax movie ever again. Right. I, have not watched anything that Kevin Spacey was in uh, since that s- story broke. For some reason, that w- that was one that I really don't have any interest in watching him at the moment. Yeah, um, I know plenty of people who do- who will not watch Woody Allen movies because of yeah. all of the all of the allegations surrounding him that are quite credible, based on all the evidence documented throughout the years right and i i feel like i i often find myself in the position of 
me personally, I, I'm generally, I can generally separate myself enough to still see those movies, listen to those recordings. Um, but I don't think everyone can. I don't think necessarily everyone should separate it because there's, there's a lot of discussion about can you separate the art from the artist, and I think ultimately you can't. But at the same time, I do think we need to be listening to some of these, some great works by deeply bad people, uh, if, if that makes any sense at all. Uh, um, sorry, I don't need to get... We just got to make new recordings. Yeah, that, you know, there's there, a market there, for that, right? Solution. <laughs> that is your solution right there. Um, and that is the solution with, with you know, the entire problem in Hollywood too is you know you you just get more diverse people more good people to make these movies and you don't have to rely on this uh, old generation of of people who are terrible people creating these movies you don't you don't have to do just, that you can keep going just to the erase james levine's conducting from all these recordings and put christopher Plummer in <laughs> <laughs> just take his name off the cd yeah. and then Wait, I mean, on, on a, at a certain point you know uh i think that levine's music is still worth listening to uh at least for me but if in 50 years we just get a massive bunch of great recordings that, and everyone has something that outshines Levine's recordings, I would be perfectly okay with losing Levine in my library. I'll, I'll say practically it's unlikely that he's ever going to fade all the way away. He was such a central part of the industry in a time when they were making lots of physical, like physical recordings, both video and audio of right 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 of operas that had many that had been recorded a million times before but also lots that had not been recorded and it with the way that things have changed since his heyday it's going to be very hard to fill that hole in a practical way yeah so i have a feeling that the art form as a as a whole is not really going to try that hard to do so that's the thing i'm just wondering what like the production meetings are at like classical radio stations where you know, they have things that they play and are they going to just like, okay, just for a while, we're just not going to play any of these, you know, and not talk, or when they credit something, know. they're like with Cecilia Bartoli, Metzoprano and June. Just kind of mumble it. They're like yeah. I do whenever I have to pronounce someone's yeah. name in French. Uh, yeah. Yames Labine. Yeah. I think my, I think the most interesting thing for, for Levine, uh, kind of my, my last thought on it is, uh, my last question uh, is for people who are new to opera and classical music in general. Um, Levine has been the big American conductor for a while. So how does that affect newcomers to the art form? Do they not know about it? Do they not care? Do they... That, that was what, I, what I've been thinking about because, you know, as, as all of us, we know James Levine's work pretty well. We know opera very well. Uh, at least most of us do. I'm just faking it. But, um, <laughs> um, but there's a, but you know, how do you get into an art form where this is the big story, you know, in that art form? I'm sorry. What are you are you asking? Like how to bring somebody into the fold and not talk about James Levine? Well, yeah, I mean, it's. Yeah. I just just think if you were the if you saw your first opera, uh-huh. you liked it, you yeah. thought it was great. Uh, you get home, uh, you look up the people in the program uh, a couple couple days later, and you find out that 
and you do a little Google search and you find out that it was James Levine, at least hypothetically. Yeah. Um, how does that affect you? Does that become emblematic of everything opera is about? Do you abandon ship? Do you look beyond it? Um, I don't know. This might be a, a too hypothetical line of thought, but this, this was kind of the thing that's been bugging me for the past couple days. So about you, this. you're saying like maybe a neophyte might feel like this this business opera is just so corrupt. And like, I don't want any part of it because the the de the degree to which the story is extreme, it yeah. just feels like, what else is there? I have a hard time believing that m many people knew the extent to yeah. it, given how long it was covered up. This is a whole different level, as yeah. opposed to what the stories that broke originally, uh, which were already pretty bad. But there, I. I have a sinking feeling that we still haven't even heard the last of what yeah. of what has been going on over the past 50 years. But we will be covering it on Opera Box Score. <laughs> so on that somewhat depressing note, uh, if you're just joining us, tonight is WNUR's Phonathon. <laughs> Call what a miraculous segue. <laughs> Call in your contribution to the station at 847-866-9687 or donate online at www.wnur.org slash donate. Um, and uh, you'll be able to hear our dulcet tones uh, ex expounding on these uh, deep issues in classical music and maybe some lighter stuff. I think we have a little <laughs> bit of lighter stuff coming up next. Chicago Opera Theater has announced its 2018-2019 season. We're going to crunch the numbers on the famous Dodson scale next, and that's only on Opera Box Score on WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Whether you're allergic to opera or you're a devoted fan, our show is for you. We tackle the week's opera headlines and body slam them into a sports radio setup. The result, 60 minutes of play-by-play -play analysis, exclusive interviews, and scandalous opinions. Plus the heroes, villains, and stats from this crazy art form that we love and love to complain about. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR. Opera class, sports radio crass. This is Opera Box Score. That is right. We are back when we're going to finish up our chalk talk tonight by grading Chicago Opera Theater's new season on the now famous Dodson scale. Uh, you want to walk us through how that works, Oliver? Well, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. So if you want to hear the the details of this. Uh, originality and diversity scale. You can hear it at I think was it two episodes ago or three episodes ago. I think we. Well, I it think was I one where I was on. Yeah, it was so. actually on the. It's in the title of the show, like the Doug Dotson diversity scale. Uh, but I think George has also posted the scale uh, on our website under Dotson scale or um, Dotson metric maybe. Um, so uh, Doug Dotson, uh, panel a co-host of uh, Opera Now podcast, came up with a system for uh, scoring opera season announcements based on uh, originality and diversity. And you get points for new work. You get points for pre-mid-18th uh, century work. You get points for um, female conductors. You get points for singers of color. You get points for um, 
operas being presented in languages outside of Italian, French, German, and English. So what you're saying is uh, the Metropolitan Opera has not scored high? <laughs> is that what you're saying, Oliver? We scored the Mets season a couple weeks ago, and it got a big fat zero. Uh, all of its uh, benefits were canceled out by all of the things that you lose points for, which are things like having multiple operas from the same composer for programming Traviata, Boheme, and uh, Carmen. And even more points are programming all three of them. <laughs> <laughs> you the lose, trifecta. Yeah, uh, I forget you lose points for um, Wagner, just generally, because <laughs> Doug doesn't care for Wagner. Um, yeah. That's fair. Yeah. So, um, the Chicago Opera Theater's season was announced last week, actually, on the 28th, which would have been Wednesday? Wednesday, yes. So, uh, just a little bit after we recorded our last episode. And they had this event on the Pritzker stage at Millennium Park. And uh, the general director, um, Doug Clayton, reintroduced the audience to the new music director, Lydia Yankovskaya, who was our interview guest a couple of months ago. And they presented excerpts from the upcoming operas while introducing the season and also introducing uh, an initiative that they're calling the Vanguard Initiative for Developing New Works. So their upcoming season begins with Tchaikovsky's Yolanta. Mm. The second opera in their season is a brand new opera that has been workshopped at Prototype, but it's getting its first full production. Uh, it's called The Scarlet Ibis, and that's uh, composed by Stefan Weissman with libretto by David Cote. And then they're finishing their season with a big show that they're going out of the Studebaker and into the Harris Theater, uh, Jake Heggie's Moby Dick. Oh, I didn't know they were holding that in the Harris Theater. They are, yeah. That, that makes sense. That I was, really wondering, the Studebaker. <laughs> I was yeah. wondering how they were going to jam the whole boat in there yeah. and the whale and all. So, starting with Yolanta, five points for being in Russian, three points for having uh, a female conductor, Lydia Yankovskaya. Uh, and I believe she's going to be the new... Yeah, she's the new yeah. music director. Yeah. Yeah. So she's not conducting everything, but she's conducting that show. And one extra point for having an African-American in the announced cast. The second show gets a lot of points. Uh, five points for being composed after 1950. An additional five points for being composed after the year 2000. An additional five points for being the first production of an opera. Uh, and that isn't a workshop, even though... Right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, an extra point for a female uh, stage director and uh, an extra point for an African-American announced in the cast. And then Moby Dick actually really sweeps it up. Uh, those extra 10 points for being after 1950 and after 2000. Uh, five points for being the second production of an opera. Another three points for having Lydia Yankovska conducting. Another point for having Christine McIntyre as a stage director. And two more points for announcing uh, singers of color in the cast. With a grand total of 46 points wow. for, for the season. Yeah, which puts other yeah, <laughs> announcements that's, to shame. That's, so that's, that, that's leaderboard. That's nine yeah, lyric right operas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and now, I, I have to say a couple things about yeah. the Dodson scale, which yeah. is one of my favorite parts about it is that they get extra points for doing the second production of a work. Yeah. Because how many op- next big operas have there been that are done once yeah. and right, then maybe right. revived a year or a couple years later and then are never heard from again? Right. And... The if we're really trying to incorporate new pieces into the repertoire, the rep- they have to survive. Yeah, true, very true. I, I think it, I think it's great. I mean, and uh, and and you and you did pull you point out before the show when we were discussing this um, that uh, there might have been a slight unfair advantage for COT. Well, I don't know if it's unfair because it's still their choice. Right, they right, cho- true, they chose true. to program it this way, but 
COT only does three shows a year. Right. So they don't have the same opportunity for demerits as opera houses that are doing eight or 10 or 25 shows. Right. But on the other hand, those operas are still being, are still programming very safely and they have the opportunity to avoid those demerits as well. <laughs> Absolutely. So. We should just, we should just like um, pull like a Martin Luther and just like nail these on the doors of all the major opera houses <laughs> and just, uh, yeah. And then, th- and then, then watch as the casting director comes out and looks at it and throws it away yeah. because they don't, or maybe doesn't even look at it. So I also wanted to just briefly talk about their initiative, uh, the Vanguard initiative, which is the three pronged approach to developing new operas and fostering composers. So the first prong is uh, a composer in residence program uh, for emerging opera composers. The second part of this uh, is their investment in uh, new pieces, no matter what stage they're in, be it in the creative process or actually commissioning something or helping finish, take a work past the finish line. And lastly, uh, they want to produce operas uh, by Chicago composers, for the Chica- by living composers for the Chicago community. Um, so... To that end, they've already started this new initiative. They've announced uh, a composer in residence. Her name is Stacy Garup, a female composer. Mm. And I believe she's already an artist in residence at Roosevelt University, which has a partnership with COT. And they are helping to develop uh, an opera called The Life and Deaths of Alan Turing uh, oh. in partnership with the American Lyric Theater. Starring Benedict with, Cumberbatch. Yeah, <laughs> yeah with a uh, composer named Justine Chen. So another a uh, female composer and a composer of color on top of that. So uh, taking all of those things into account, plus their initiative to use Chicago-based singers in um, the operas that are coming to their next season, and they actually were very deliberate about it. They had a casting call, and they cast uh, Yolanta herself uh, with a local singer. And even for this event, they were very proud to show us local talent, including a countertenor from here, from Northwestern University, named Carl Alexander. Oh, that's who, great. Yeah, who's not actually getting cast in the main stage season, but was used for this sort of, uh, you know, uh, event, this this announcement event. And he sang beautifully and very convincingly uh, in the role of this, like, crippled or <laughs> disabled child in the Scarlet Ibis um, preview. So, and yeah, I was really, really happy that these like high level donor people and press people got to hear a talent that I think is really important uh, that I was very excited to hear the first time last year. And I'm just waiting for this guy's career to take off. Uh, He he was a classmate of mine. He's one of the most unique and just passionate people I've met in my entire life. Everything he does, he just throws himself into 100%. And he's very artistic and he has a lot to say for somebody his age. I was really impressed with his artistic maturity and he can sing. (laughs) Just in the same way as you are not impressed by my maturity, (laughs) you were impressed at his maturity. I I said That is exactly what he said. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So kudos kudos to Chicago Opera Theater. Yeah. Yeah. Theater. Yeah, making, making, putting Chicago on the map again, you know. Yeah, it's great. I, I I have to say I really like um, um, the the just the general philosophy of Chicago Opera Theater in terms of what they program and how they program things, uh, and I like the direction the company is going. Um, uh, and uh, if you tuned in a couple weeks ago, I mean, I think we all saw. Um, uh, uh, but, but Elizabeth Green. Green. Yeah, I wasn't on that show either, but uh, I gotta say, I'm on the COT train after that show. Yeah, yeah. I loved that. It. Was one of the best. It was things great. Done. Yeah, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, now they gotta try to make Rita and Pygmalione like worth worth yeah, being the, the season ending there. <laughs> I've I've done a trio from Rita. It's not so as best. Donatetti double bill. Not everybody. as best so, work. 
I'm yeah. excited to see him just because I've never heard of either of those two, okay. <laughs> two operas. I think the tenor is really good. Javier Abreu. I think, yeah. yeah. So he's like a bel canto-ish. And if it's yeah. if it's well staged, there's a lot of opportunity for it to yeah. be funny. But if it if it's poorly staged, there is it would it can be painful. Those, those <laughs> so we'll we see what they do. We'll yeah. we'll definitely cover it when it happens. Um, but anyway, if you're just joining us, a reminder uh, that this week is Phonathon here at WNUR. Call in your contribution to the station at eight four seven eight six six nine six eight seven or donate online at www.wnur.org slash donate. And coming up next. German director Hans Neuenfels made some waves in Berlin last week. Find out what in the two-minute drill. And Oliver plays Monday evening quarterback. That's all next on America's talk radio show about opera, only on WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago. You're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Give me 60 more seconds of your time so I can share a secret with you. When I tell people about Opera Box Score, they always ask, how come we're a live talk radio show, not just a podcast? The answer? We want to give listeners like you the chance to call into our show and have your opinion heard live on air. It's easy. Stream our show live on WNUR.org slash pop-up on Mondays at 9 p.m. Central Time. Then, give us a call during the broadcast with your take on what we're talking about. The number? 847-866-WNUR. Wait, do people even have letters on their phones anymore? 847-866-9687. Talk to you later. This just in, the two-minute drill. Okay, time for everything you need to know about from the past week in Opera Land in less than two minutes. Conductor Christoph von Donani has walked out of a production of Strauss's Zalame at the Staatsoper in Berlin over, quote, differences with the director Hans Neuenfels. Donani, 88, who took over the show from the surgically sidelined Zubin Mehta, told told the theater that his young sidekick, Thomas Gugais, could take his place. Gugais is Daniel Barenboim's assistant. That comes on the heels of an announcement by Neuenfels that his production of Tchaikovsky's Queen of Spades at this summer's Salzburg Festival will probably be his last. I've done enough, he told the Bayreuth production of Wagner's... Oh, goodness gracious. He told the <laughs> he told the Berlin Zeitung, Neuenfels 76 is renowned for a Bayreuth production of Wagner's Lohengrin in which the chorus was dressed as rats. Hundreds of workers were forced into the freezing cold as Royal Opera House and other buildings in central London were evacuated due to a bomb scare. The number of roads in Covent Garden were cordoned off as police investigated a report of a suspicious package last Tuesday. On the disabled list, Mexican Javier Camarena has been replaced in this week's performances of the Mets Semiramide uh, Day production by, by house understudy, I cannot read tonight, Robert McPherson. Exit stage right, Jesus Lopez Cobos, the longest tenured music director in the history of the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra, has died. He was 78. The Wiener Staatsoper says he died Friday in Berlin of cancer. And on this day, March 5th, it's the death anniversaries of Tito Jobi, the Italian barito, 
baritone in 1984, and also that of composer Sergei Prokofiev, who died in 1953. Plus, 200 years ago tonight, it was the premiere of Rossini's Mose in Egito in Naples. And that is your two-minute drill. This is America's talk radio show about opera with George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, and Weston Williams. And if you're not just now joining us, please consider donating to WNUR's Phonathon. Our goal is $30,000. Donate online to www.wnur.org slash donate or call in your donation at 847-866-9687. And now... <laughs> Can I just like, before we talk about anything, so that add a couple of corrections. Um, Tito Gobi. Gobi. Yeah. I, I <laughs> was... a baritone. I just absolutely just... Absolutely flat out could not read any of that. It's I don't a phonathon, know. I know. I, I, know. I think it was. Yeah. I, I, I practiced uh, to, to say the phonathon thing, and that's yeah. the only thing I practiced. And, Javier, a fundraiser and, and Javier Camarena is not just a Mexican, he's also a tenor. I think that was a missing. Mexican tenor. Yeah. <laughs> See, that, that was George's fault. He wrote yeah, that. Yeah. I was just reading it. Okay. George is the best. And, <laughs> Mexican um, tenor. And I'm not, I'm not sure how I feel about us, uh, you know commemorating deaths of people. I'm going to talk to George about that. I feel like... Well, I think in this case, Prokofiev's death is interesting uh, because, fun fact, uh, he died... <laughs> fun fact about his death. No, this is a fun fact because I think I know what he's going to yeah. say. <laughs> he died it. on the same day as uh, uh, Joseph Stalin. Yes. Um, and mm. so his funeral was kind of, you know, overshadowed by that because the, the funerals also happened on the same day. Uh, and uh, if you remember, um, uh, Dmitry Shostakovich, uh, uh, fellow composer who didn't actually like Prokofiev that much, um, he made a point of going to Prokofiev's funeral instead of Stalin's as a, sort of a, an act of defiance against okay. his legacy. So it, I think it is a pretty interesting uh, a little fun and fact. And then Tito Gobi had to go ahead and die on that day and just ruin everything. So. <laughs> what does he have to do with resisting totalitarianism? That's what I'd like who to Who knows? Know. Who knows? Okay, so who's got a hot take for me on any one of those uh, things that I butchered just then? It's a. It's been a while since I feel like we've heard about Hans Neuenfels. He would... That I remember people getting so outraged about that production of Low and Granite by Royd a while ago. Yeah, I, I was I was reading it and I was like it was like awakening like an yeah. ancient memory in the back of my head. I was like, oh yeah, people didn't like that. I thought it was fun. I mean, I didn't see. It. I saw clips from it and then and I was like, oh, this is this is good. <laughs> yeah, I, I've I've been reading up a little bit about this Zalame performance that they're doing. Just and it seems like he's so he's setting it as more or less a parable about Oscar Wilde. Uh, all of these articles oh. were in German, so I only got maybe I don't know a third of <laughs> half of what they were saying. But it's about Oscar Wilde and his res- and his struggle for trying to fit into uh, a Christian society at the time, since Salome is it, it was adapted from an Oscar Wilde play originally, right? Right. And so that to me seems like a really interesting concept, and I'm really coming down more on the Neuenfeld side than the Donanyi. I mean, I haven't seen it in I haven't seen it in praxis, but mm. Yeah, I, I, I saw I saw a little trailer of it. Um, and, you know, obviously, if you're a big traditional production kind of guy, it's not going to be your cup of tea. But I, it did look very interesting. I think the, the, the Oscar Wilde thing uh, is kind of overlooked by people who know the opera. You know, it's, it's very, they think of it as, oh, it's very much Strauss's thing. It's like, well, you have to remember that it, it came, the story and the words... Uh, not the German words, obviously, but the the original uh, English came from this great uh, playwright, poet, uh, 
flamboyant historical figure. Uh, and I think that's something that's often lost in productions of Zalame that just kind of take it as an extension purely of Strauss's music. So I think it's a it's at least conceptually a good way to take it. And it, and where Strauss's music fits into the, the, his the history of music too. I know in Alex Ross's book, The Rest Is Noise, he calls that the beginning of modernity. Is the first mm, the beginning of Zalame. absolutely. So building off of that, that makes it even stranger to come down as insisting on a modern, uh, being against a modern production of Zalame, yeah, exactly. which is an opera that's really more about modernity than many other. Yeah. pieces of music. It's, the, I, I feel like the big debate about traditional and modern productions uh, uh, is sometimes I, I feel like there, there are there are some operas that were meant to be eternally modern, eternally like that. I, I really just don't understand the false dichotomy. That's really one of my that, that's true as in well, yeah. all of my life is why do people have to make false dichotomies about things but traditional versus innovative productions. I don't yeah. understand. Sometimes sometimes you can have both there are so many yeah, productions yeah. of bohem out there why do all of them have to be the same with the entire city of paris and the zoo on stage <laughs> and 1700 <laughs> children Got and a... the same pink muff making a franco zeffirelli can only do so much you guys he's he's busy he's old he can't he can't make all your productions for you for la bohem you gotta gotta it's gotta get someone else in there some new blood um but that but this production is going going to be Almost his last. It's going to be the last production that Neuenfels does in Berlin. Oh, really? Since he's si- and since then he's, he's going to die. Oh, well, no. well, you know, he said he's going to retire after <laughs> okay. his Salzburg okay. uh, Queen of Spades this summer. And okay. he is out. He's just gone. I mean, if anybody saw the Oscars last night, Jane Fonda looks amazing. She's like seventy nine or like eighty one. It's ridiculous, and she she looks amazing. She's not so. that old, is yeah, she? she is. Yeah, yeah, she is. Yeah, she is. I I don't believe you. Yeah. I'm going to Google it right now. Yeah. You guys, you she's guys, in talk. her she's in her mid to late seventies for sure. Okay, Jane Fonda. Um, so, uh, speaking of Mexican tenors, uh, Javier Camarena. Um, it's I mean, George's rundown says that he's being replaced for the week's performances. He backed up the whole week. He did two. He I know Robert McPherson went on for at least two performances. Okay, and one of them I believe was on twenty minutes notice or something okay. like that, and oh, the other goodness. one I think was more like twenty four hours notice. Javier Camarena showed up at the Met Quiz I think last week, and he was super charming, uh, and the the intermission quiz feature. Yeah. And um, I think he's one of the big draws for this Samirama day. And it's an HD this Saturday. So uh, I hope, I hope he makes it back in there. Even I know. This, he, it's just one of the most stunningly beautiful voices. Yeah. I, think I've I've, ever it's my, to. I mean, of the people singing the repertoire right now, um, I mean, I don't want to say I like him better than Juan Diego Flores because I think Juan <sighs> Diego Flores brings they a lot of different strengths. Yeah. For sure. Juan brings a lot Diego. of stage presence yeah. and like, you know, but as far as like what I want to hear, like it's and he out, and so. he maybe isn't quite as adept at the that high filigree stuff that Juan Diego Flores can do better than any per, yeah. other person on, any the planet. on the planet. But his voice <laughs> is so beautiful, yeah. which is just in terms of pure tone, you don't always get that from people who sing impressive music. Sometimes yeah. you kind of have to pick one or the other. But yeah, it, mm, yeah. true. He's true. got them both. Yeah, yeah. But always exciting to see an, an understudy go on and have a chance, and it, that that's. That's professionalism in a nutshell for me is that you're able to walk on and just constantly keep trying something new to make it work. I'm sure that there were terrifying moments that went on (laughs) in his shoes. Robert McPherson is actually the he's one of the moderators of the big classical singer forum on Facebook. Really? Really? 
How old is he? Do you think? Um, probably he's not 40-ish. eighty. I, I look. I looked it up. Jane Fonda is eighty. So you were. Wow. You were right. You were mm. right. Um, so I have. I'm ashamed to say that I don't know much about uh, Jesus Lopez, Lopez Cobos. Cobos's career, but I do know that I own a lot of his recordings, especially ones made on the um, Philips label. He did a handful of stuff with Caballé, right? Yeah, exactly the Caballé stuff. But also later on in his career, he was working with Jennifer Larmore. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, the Caballé I have. I think the Mose Nichito and the Elisabetta Regina di Galatera, the Rossini rarities, and. Uh, I think he did a Lucia with Caballé as well, and yeah. Jose Carreras, yeah. Oh, that's a cast. And, uh, oh, he did the Otello, the Rossini Otello. Uh, he, yeah. So, yeah, big history with Belcanto. That's your that's your wheelhouse right there. Yeah. Yeah. I love Belcanto. <laughs> I do, too. Yeah. I do, too. I got to defend it all the time. But, I'm just surround. Yeah. I'm just a Wagnerian surrounded by Belcanto yeah, like people. like Nazis. What am I saying? <laughs> I mean, we like people who have feelings and I, not people who think they're better than everyone. Uh, yeah, that's true. I mean, Carry On was a was kind of a harsh dude. Yeah, that's all fair. I think uh, I think I'm going to use my uh, position to get myself out of this quandary <laughs> by forcing us into the next segment, which is of course going to be Monday Evening Quarterback. Pass or fail? Here's Monday Evening Quarterback. All right, Oliver, this is your segment. Take okay. it away. So I feel bad that I did not get to see the uh, opening performances of this opera, but I made it to the third one, and now this production of Cozy is at the halfway point, and they have shows all the way up until, I think, March 18th or March 16th. Uh, so um, I'm going to just just lay out my cards right now. Go see this. Uh, it is one of the better productions of Cozy that I have had the chance to see. And this is an opera that I love. And I love it so much that there's not a perfect version of it. You know, like we were just talking last week and I, you know, I own whatever, 13 recordings of this opera. Only 13? Yeah. <laughs> I've listened to a bunch Come of other Come on, ones, Oliver. But, I'm so disappointed in you. Not one of them has a perfect cast. Not one of them has the perfect conductor or the perfect balance, you know. So the perfect version of this opera exists only in my imagination. <laughs> uh, this production by no means is perfect. Uh, I'll start off by saying that the conductor, James Gaffigan, uh, has very different ideas for what is possible with the human voice <laughs> than the singers. <laughs> are, we talking, are we talking fast, slow, or both? Fast. Yeah. He started the overture at breakneck speed. I was like, okay, it's going to be exciting. And he did that thing that makes operas, Mozart operas especially exciting by running ends of numbers right into their following recits, you know? Right. Which doesn't give the audience a chance to applaud. But... Ultimately, they're grateful because that means we they shave. don't have to applaud for forty-two numbers. <laughs> yeah, you shave you shave off some time, you know. It's, it makes it's easier on your hands ultimately. Yeah, um, but there were some moments that did not breathe, and as I said last week, this is an opera that has a lot of fermatas in it for a Mozart opera because Mozart has a lot of stop and start, which is unusual for Mozart. But this opera does have that, and there needs to be just some moments that have space and that breathe, particularly stuff that happens in the second act and some of the uh, ensembles where there's lots of beautiful uh, passage work being done in harmony or in counterpoint even. So that stuff kind of got all jumbled up and not every singer was able to keep up with this tempo. And often I found the singers fighting with Gaffigan to establish a tempo. Uh, And usually the 
he won. He he ultimately just gave in, and they that one per one person versus an eighty eighty person orchestra. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. It's it's kind of interesting that you're mentioning that because uh, I I have not seen this entire production, but I did manage to sneak into um, the first rehearsal with the orchestra. Yeah. And I was noticing that as well, but I just thought it was a uh, rehearsal yeah, thing, yeah. just a rehearsal thing. Yeah. So I'm interested interested that it's gone on into the actual performances. Yeah, he's a little, he's a rusher, you know? Yeah. Uh, but I, I mean, like, he definitely conducted with a lot of gesture. Uh, not mean to say, like, physical gesture, but, like, he, the music has gesture. There's rhetoric in it. And he definitely was trying to get that out of the orchestra and out of the singers. It didn't always work. But I appreciate his attempt if he had a smaller venue and singers that just had, you know, techniques that lent themselves to that. He might have gotten that, uh, you know, result, but not with this cast. Uh, so speaking of the cast, I was very much looking forward to Andrew Stenson, uh, who I heard last week uh, in a Beyond the Art performance. He's a uh, Korean-American tenor, uh, and he is a clown. And actually, <laughs> I'm going to get an interview with him this week, and we'll have it for next week. Uh, but he is hilarious. And uh, he is just really, really easy on stage, very natural, and just funny as as f you know and i was so impressed with his just ability to be instantly likable on stage in a tough character to do that yeah too. he yeah, can come true. off as kind of a kind of wallpaper yeah uh joshua hopkins was the guillermo who um was also in a the passenger a couple of years ago and i remember being very very moving in that and his voice is very you know American baritone or Canadian, whatever he is, you know, it's got that very North American sound, very clean, very masculine, not super powerful, but beautiful and great stage presence and definitely had a lot to work with because of Andrew Stenson. Uh, Alessandro Corbelli, veteran Italian comic baritone, did exactly what needed to be done. Very enjoyable performance. Uh, the sisters, Anna Maria Martinez, uh, ostensibly the star of this production, I loved her Don Elvira. Uh, she got great reviews for Rizalka, uh from a couple years ago. But I've always been kind of hot or cold about her, actually, as a singer. Mm. And she left me cold here. Um, she doesn't have, like, a very pronounced chest register. And she is not really great at holding her voice, holding the vibrato back, and giving, like, just pure pitch, you know? There's always, like, some fuzziness, you know? And the voice is placed back and it's a pretty decent sized voice but it just seemed a little dried out and I've read some after I saw the production on Sunday I've read some reviews and other uh, reviewers seem to agree that there's something kind of missing there's like the edge is, is coming off of her voice which was made even more apparent because the mezzo-soprano cast as Dorabella her name is um, Mariana Crebasa this is her second show with the lyric uh, she was Stefano in the Romeo and Juliet from a couple years ago she was great in that yeah this woman, like, stole the show. She's a beautiful woman, which is not that important, but it definitely helps. Her voice has so much edge to it. It just cuts through everything, mm -hmm. and it made everybody sound like they were singing in a different room than her. Like, her voice just went right straight to your ear. And the tone is beautiful, and it's very flexible, and she's a great actress. Like, it was, it was the performance of the show. And if you're going to go see the show, go see it for Mariana Carbasa's performance and for Andrew Stenson's comic ability. Uh, we have a little clip of Carbasa, but before we hear it, did you have a question or you want to ask me anything about? Yeah, what do the, is there a, what, what's the, uh, 
is there a stage and concept? Yeah, Sometimes this is a, a, little... a remounting of a production from Monte Carlo and San Francisco. It's set like at a hotel casino. It feels sort of World War One flapperish. Imme- flapper dresses, immediately you know. pre World War One. Yeah, yeah. And they use World War One as uh, a device at the end of the show for a surprise ending, which. It's not that big of a surprise, but yeah. <laughs> what the Duke? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's from Ragtime. From oh, really? Musical okay. Theater so I mean, I think the production works. It's very beautiful. The the set changes are very very graceful, and the sets look expensive, and uh, yeah, I noticed the audience really being appreciative of the sets. Like when some sets were revealed, I heard like, ah, oh, you know, and like it's stupid when people do that for a set, you know. But it's it it does you know, it, <laughs> it does it reassure. is a really nice set, it, I, and the costumes, the whole uh, the whole concept, I think, is really pretty and kind of works for. It's cohesive. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, in a way that and it some serves the music. Not. It's yeah. not fighting with the music. Yeah. Absolutely. So let's hear a little bit of Mario about what did you choose for us, man? This is uh, the end of Parto Parto, the big aria from Clemenza di Tito, and this I believe is from Salzburg. Recently, uh, Teodor Carenzis, who is the conductor, and get He's ready for some on speed, fast, <laughs> yeah. fast singing. <laughs> Just listening to that, she reminds me of Federica von Stada, but yeah. with a faster vibrato. But they have a very similar tone quality. I so I almost forgot to mention the Despina uh, Elena Salagova making her U.S. debut. Uh, fine, it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tricky part. You yeah. know, there's so many. There's so much text in that role, yeah. and, and you have to be funny. And, and you're always buried in the bottom of the ensembles, yeah. underneath the women, and it, it it's a hard role to really stand out in yeah and it's well it's hard i mean i think that this being a steal the show actually yeah but you have to be able to do lots of different things yes. you know so. yeah it's it's a lot of a lot of plates to juggle particularly for yeah. mozart everything's so exposed yeah. you know not even just musically well, but also you gotta to do the two characters besides her and, you true, know, true and you have to like show it the, the ending is so hard for Despina because like she has to like feel bad but she's has had no conscience the whole time you know yeah so. yeah if you get it all right i agree with you yeah. that it's really it, it can really stand out but there's yeah. so many variables that yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's more often than not. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to roll on into uh, Good Call, Bad Call here on Opera Box Score. Good Call, Put a map Bad Call Put a map on Opera Box Score. Matt, what have you got for me? I've got a good call that two of our own are currently involved in a project. <gasps> the Great God Pan by Chicago Fringe Opera opens this Saturday, March 10th. Uh, the show's at 730, and I believe it's at the Chopin Theater. 
Uh, and there are fur- there are more performances March 12th, 14th, 16th, and uh, a matinee on the 18th. Is that why I've been working the last couple that of years? That is why that is oh. why you've been here. Yeah, it's all adding up now. <laughs> yeah, so I can't wait to go support our co-hosts. So I have to tell you what it's like to be Oliver Camacho uh, on one particular day, and if you do all these things, you can achieve. Oliver Camacho-ness, which I know you guys are all want to do. That so. is my goal in life. <laughs> so um, Saturday is really interesting here in Chicago because you can go, like everybody else, to the Met HD broadcast of Semirami Day with Angela Mead, uh, Elizabeth Deshong, and maybe Javier Camarena, which is not a super exciting opera, but fantastic music, and Angela Mead is just crushing it these days. That's at like noon or something. And then later in the afternoon, uh, Haymarket Opera is doing their um, third... Uh, oratorio uh, in their Lenten oratorio season, which features, among other people, Drew, Men- Drew Minter, who was one of my mentors. Uh, oh, <laughs> convenient. Your mentor, Drew Minter. My, my mentor, Drew Minter. Um, <laughs> and I have to remind some of you who are interested in doing the Haymarket Summer Opera Program that they're probably still taking applications. The application is closed on March 1st, but I talked to their executive director, and they probably will take, take a few more. So if you're interested in working with my mentor, Drew Minter, you should apply to the Haymarket Summer Opera Program. And then shortly after that, at 7.30 p.m., uh, you can go hear Sarah Garthshore, who I heard two years ago in the Haymarket Oratorio, uh, singing the Verdi Requiem uh. with Apollo Chorus and Elmhurst Symphony Orchestra, with Lauren Decker, who's a current Ryan Opera Center mezzo, who, I mean, alto, and she's incredible, Scott Ramsey, tenor, who was actually our guest a few months ago during The Perfect American, and bass baritone Sam Handley. So... You can have the Oliver Camacho trifecta this coming Saturday, Semiramide Day, Haymarket Oratorio, and Verdi Requiem. Oh, those are some good calls. I got a good call for you, too. I know we've been doing a lot of uh, the phone-a-thon for WNUR here, but I'm going to go ahead and plug uh, a, a slightly different donation. You know, while you're donating to uh, the phone-a-thon, you can also keep your wallets out uh, and go to operaboxscore.com slash donate and donate directly to the show and to the podcast. It really helps out, really supports us. Uh, thanks to Min from Boston, who sent us a Chinese New Year gift via that method. Uh, And uh, that's about it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general manager at WNUR is Nick Anderson. Our announcer is Norm Woodell. Visit Norm on the web at boxershorts.com. That's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. And leave a review when you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Matt Cummings, I'm Weston Williams asking you to continue the conversation about opera now that winter is definitely not over. Probably. Uh, We're back on Monday, March 12th at 9 p.m. Central with a preview of Gregory Spears and Gregory Pierce's opera Fellow Travelers at Lyric Unlimited. Join us. This is WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's sound experiment.